Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. I learned my mom kept these extensive journals when I was probably in high school in my late teens. My mom used to tell a lot of stories after dinner time, and then she mentioned she had these journals, and I was just floored, and I asked her about them. This is Andrew Nguyen. I'm a filmmaker and CBC video producer. Nailed it, Andrew. I'm doing good, huh? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And his mom's journals were not regular diaries. My mom kept these journals in a shoebox in her closet. And uh, when I saw them for the first time, basically they were a collection of notebooks. One of the notebooks was a, a handcrafted, bound notebook made from scrap paper. And then once she ran out of paper in that book, she peeled off the labels of canned yellow beans and she used those scraps of paper for her continued writing. But it's not what they're made out of that makes these journals so special. It's the story they tell. These journals document the very first day our family escaped from Vietnam in uh, the winter of 1979. And then everything that happened in between up until the summer of 1980 when we finally made it to Canada. Yeah, I was only four years old when we left Vietnam. How much do you even remember of that of that journey? Can you recall like any of it? I have bits of memories here and there, fragments really. Uh, they're not enough to put together a full story, which is why I think the journals are so important to me. I remember the very first day uh, that we left. I think I was eating an orange and it was early in the morning and my mom said, hey, we're going on a trip, a short trip. And then it jumps all the way to memories that I have aboard the Skyluck. The Skyluck, a cargo ship, one that had never been intended for human passengers, but would be Andrew's family's home for more than five months. And the Skyluck journals are Tina Nguyen's records of that time, of her family's escape from Vietnam. I'm Macy Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. More than 100,000 people fled Vietnam after the fall of Saigon in 1975. One of the most powerful images of that time was of helicopters landing on the roof of the American embassy, racing to evacuate people. When the world witnessed the fall of Kabul last month, with aircraft laden with people trying to flee the capital, it brought back a lot of memories. Because that, that was us trying to leave Vietnam. That, that was our family, you know, trying to find a place, a country where we could be free. It took a long time for Tina Nguyen to face her journals again. Uh, I think all those memories were just too painful and she, she had enough. But earlier this year, we helped Andrew get them translated. 
And his mom decided to give it a go, to read them to him. For Andrew, this means finally hearing the details of a journey that he lived but can barely remember. One he took with his younger sister, his dad, mom, uncle, and thousands of other desperate people more than 40 years ago. You know, the Skylag Journals is something really special to me. I think when I was younger, they were this amazing, fantastic story of how our family came to Canada. It was high stakes. It was harrowing. But I think as I've gotten older, I'm seeing the journals in a much different way. To me now, when I look at it, there are stories about how a young woman made decisions in impossible situations. And I feel like for me today, they really are a story of hope and a story of love. It's my mom's love story to her family. Andrew will take it from here. This story starts with a photograph of a young woman taken in Saigon, Vietnam during the 1960s. I'm glad that you went down into your storage and pulled out this picture frame. And it's so beautiful. It's in a photo studio. The lighting is gorgeous. Your hair is long. Thank you. How old were you in that photo? I think I was about 18 or 19 the most. I was in university in... 1969 was for my first year. What was life like back then in the late 60s? What was Vietnam like, the mood, the atmosphere? What was going on? For Vietnam, I don't know, but for Saigon, at, in the 60s, everything was fine. We didn't feel the war. We eat, we go out, we do shopping, we play. The f- war happened somewhere else too far away. We didn't feel it. Though things would change uh, rather quickly. In, in, in a few years, you got married. You had two kids. You had me at, in 74, and then and then Juka in 77. And the world was changing very rapidly. When did you start to worry? And, and when did you start to think, I can't continue life here anymore? Well... The news about the war escalating um, in the early months of 1974, lots of people running away from home, especially from the cities in the middle part of Vietnam. It was scary. Everybody was trying to run away, but we didn't know where to run to. So all the people ran closer to the south, and um, they reached the city. It was so chaotic. At that time, our families, just your dad, me, and you, we were staying at my uncle's house, and on the first day of May, I was standing on the balcony watching on the tanks, the communist tanks approaching Saigon. I was crying. Oh, this is the end. There were about 10 of them moving slowly into the um, independent palace where the president stayed. So I think that was the end. 
of our independence, freedom. That was it. We lost Saigon. We lost Vietnam. Nobody, including me, could imagine how life would turn out under the communist regime. We had totally no freedom, freedom of mobility. We couldn't go out the city without a, a written permission. There was no more market. Everything was under control by the government. Do you remember when you started to talk to Dad and said, listen, we, we have to find a way to leave. We have to find a way to escape. In late 1978, but remember, at that time, art was a crime. If they caught you and you go to jail. So we were whispering and we only talked to the people we knew well. So we discussed that with my husband. At the beginning, I said, you just go, go first, escape, and try to uh, bring us over after because the kids were too little. Uh, what if we all die at sea? You go. I told him, go. I'd stay home with the kids. I could manage. Then he said, no. We go together. If we die, we die together. There were five of us leaving together. My mom and dad, my uncle, my sister and me. I was four years old. My sister was two. And it was going to cost a lot of money to smuggle all of us out. At that time, we had to pay to get on a boat. And if you had no connection whatsoever, you paid a lot of gold. A lot. And we didn't have that much money. Do you remember how much? From 12 ounces to 15 ounces per person. Per person. It's a lot of money. It was. And it could be a scam. They took your deposit and they, they disappear. And you had no one to complain to. And you had a hard time to go after them. My mom's five foot two. She's thin and unassuming. But under this petite frame is a very resourceful woman. You had to have a pass to leave the city. We had to go to the coastal city to get on a boat. And it was from the west side of Saigon. Before we left, I had to go to the local office to ask for a pass. They normally don't give it to you, or they only gave it to you after a lot of questions. So I had to lie to them, and I had to pretend a little bit was flirting with the guy. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that, but I flirted with a lot of guy to get things done. So... <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, <laughs> looks can help, right? Looks doesn't hurt. <laughs> so I saw the guy was floating, talking. I said, try it, try it. I only go for a couple of days. And, uh, and he signed it. He gave it to me. <laughs> Mm. 
When I was a kid, at dinner time, my mom would tell us these stories about our escape from Saigon. My sister and I would both listen, enthralled. But the thing with stories is that they have a way of displacing memory. So what is story? What is memory? Which one's true? I guess, eventually, stories are the only things that remain. And so the challenge then is to make sure they're true to history. And that is what makes my mom's journals so special. Thứ sáu, 12 tháng giêng năm 79, vội vã đi không kịp giả từ ba má. Xuống đến bến tre. Friday, January 12, 1979. We rushed out without saying goodbye to mom and dad. By the time we got to bến tre, it was past noon. We stopped here for a quick lunch and then went to the meeting point at Dyson store. They led us to a nice, fully furnished house at Ngabatab, waiting, first night away from home. This is the very first entry my mom wrote. She wrote it the day we began our escape from Vietnam. My mom tells me that we didn't tell anyone when we left, not even her parents, because we didn't want to risk them accidentally telling the neighbors and getting us arrested. So in the morning, they came, they said, let's go now. So we took off just like that. And you said, where are you going, Mom? I said, we just go for a short trip. And you had a um, a water bottle, the plastic water bottle hanging on your neck. He said, I have to bring water. Can I bring my tricycle too, Mom? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, who's going to look after my tricycle when I'm gone? I said, don't worry. Grandpa and Grandma will take care of it. So you were talking about your tricycle for a long time. (laughs) We we took two bags, I remember you mentioning, right? Yes. Some clothes, a little bit of money, very little food. Because I thought I could buy more food when I got to the wherever we're supposed to get to. and um, In my mom's journals, you'll hear her refer to me as Susu. That's my Vietnamese nickname. And you'll hear my sister referred to as Karen, or by her Vietnamese name, Chukka. We packed a lot of stuff for Chukka because she was still using the bottles, so some condensed milk bottles, a thermos, her blankie, and... Her uh, pillow. Without a pillow, she would cry all night. The five of us got into the smuggler's car, and then we drove for three hours south until we arrived at a seaside town called Banjie. And there, they led us to a safe house where we joined a group of people. And then, we waited. Chủ nhật ngày 14 tháng Giêng năm 79 vừa treo xong mùng họ đến kêu đi Sunday January 14 1979 I just finished hanging up the mosquito nets when the order came for us to leave We bundled everything up and we moved to another house It was very crowded third night away from home so difficult can describe it. No electricity, 
no water, no other houses nearby, in the middle of nowhere. My last memories of Vietnam. Oh mother, oh father. Every day, since day one, since the day we arrived at that place, there was nowhere to get the information. So every day we said, oh, we're leaving tonight. Right? Rumors and rumors. So we hung on. And then that night, we were about to go to sleep. And your uncle came and said, we're leaving, we're leaving. Thứ năm ngày 18 tháng Giêng năm 1979 chiều tối hôm qua anh chính Thursday January 18 1979 late last night my brother-in-law told us we are leaving I have to believe him are we really going they told us just be ready we stayed up all night waiting at 4 a.m we left for the boat landing. I only know that it was a small, probably fishing boat. There were about 40 or 50 of us. So when, once we got onto the boat, they shoo us into the bottom deck. There was only one deck. So we were sitting along the hall. Uh, oh, there wasn't enough room just to stretch your legs either. So we were sitting with our knees up, waiting for them. Men, women, kids, were a bunch of us. Everybody half excited, half scared, half worried. So I guess we waited for until everybody was loaded into those boats. There were seven boats together. So it must have been about 300, over 300 of us for that particular departure. Đông và hỗn loạn lắm. Cuối cùng cũng lên được tàu và xuống hầm tàu. Ngồi chờ. So crowded. Everything was in chaos. Finally, we got on board and waited down inside the boat. At 6 a.m., the boat began to leave. We moved smoothly down the river. At 8 a.m., we arrived at the mouth of the river. I took the kids up to the deck. All together, there were seven small boats. We were so lucky to get on the leading boat because my brother-in-law was the captain. Then we made our way to sea. At that time, I didn't think about anything else or where we're going, how, when, what would happen. My main concern at that time was just you and Tukka. You were sitting next to me, and Joker was crying and crying, and the people said, make her quiet. And I said, Joker, be quiet, be quiet. But then she kept on crying. 
She cried herself for so many hours and finally got so tired of crying so she fell asleep. I think at that time I said, oh, let us be safe. Uh, don't let the police nearby and catch us. We were so worried about being caught by the police. It was smooth sailing. It was safe. It didn't take very long. And then all of a sudden, we started to feel the waves. And I knew that, oh my God, we're at sea now. The plan was to get on these fishing boats, each one crammed with 50 other people, all strangers, and sail down to the mouth of the river where it meets the South China Sea. There, we would meet up with another larger vessel and sail to Australia. That was as much of the plan as my mom knew. Bắt đầu ra biển, tàu lắc dễ sợ. Mọi người mệt mỏi không buồn nói năng. So mệt ngủ. The boat was tossed heavily by the ocean waves. Everyone was tired. No one bothered to talk. I leaned my back against the hull of the boat, closed my eyes, and tried to control myself from throwing up. I had never been this tired in my life. Around 9.30 a.m., I couldn't hold it any longer. I threw up all over my clothes. What a shame. Hình như là 10 giờ thì gặp tàu lớn. Mở cửa khoang ra, mặt người nào cũng như cái mình rất. I think at 10 a.m. we met up with the big boat. When they opened up the hatch, we all looked like tattered blankets. No one bothered to climb up. They lower a cargo net and pull us up onto the big ship. Cold, tired, I just wanted to lie down. But we finally climbed up, and I saw the big boat. I said, oh, thank God we made it. This ship is very safe and would take us to our destination. So then they threw down the uh, the net, the cargo net. They said, get on it, get on it. So they opened the net, and they put, I think, something like 10 people at the time. So we went on it. I was crying. I said, this is, I'm like a, a pig. <laughs> at that time, I still felt bright. I said, my God, it's just like a pig being pulled up. So we, we were the first to arrive at the Skylark boat. And after us, there so many, so many other boats, so many other arrivals. Like the first landing was about th- over 300 people. But then there were more and more and more the next day. The Skylark was a cargo ship, almost 4,000 tons, a large rusting hulk of a freighter. In the days that followed, it swelled with 3,200 people. The Skyluck was never intended for human passengers, and it was dangerously overcrowded. The top deck was a cobweb of cranes and cables, and below there were four lower decks, 
we used three of them as improvised living quarters, and the bottom deck carried cargo. And it's inside the hull of the Skyluck that I have one of my most vivid memories. That memory is a smell. It's the smell of rusting iron mixed with humid and salty ocean air. It's a strong memory, because for a time, a tiny corner of the Skylux's third deck was our home. I wanted to check the corner because then nobody would run into us. And at the beginning, we, we took all the space there, stretched our legs and everything, but eventually there were more people, more and more and more coming. So our space got shrunk. <laughs> we only had enough for five of us to lay down at night. During the day, it was better because we all sat up. So during those few days, what was going through your mind now that we were on the boat, the large boat, the Skylark, waiting? All I wanted for them is to start the trip. I wanted them to move, to go. The original promise was to take us to Australia. So I know that it would take five days or more to get there. So the sooner we get to Australia, the better. Except that the ship didn't appear to be going anywhere. Ngày 1 tháng 2, 79, từ hôm 21 tháng 9, Thursday, February 1st, 1979. The ship departed on the 21st of January and has been going around in circles. We are getting hungrier every day. I can see that Susu and Tukka have lost weight. They're asking for food all the time. The food supply that I brought from Saigon is dwindling. They promised to provide us with more, but every day we only get one bowl of kanchi and half a glass of milk, and we have to drink unboiled water. It's never been this miserable. When the decision was made to leave the country, I was ready to accept everything except for the sorrows that my children will have to suffer. I don't think I can ever forget this horrible ordeal. Fifteen days on this damn boat. It turns out that the smugglers never actually intended to sail to Australia. All the gold paid by the passengers had been transferred to another vessel, and then strangely, the Skyluck was left sailing in circles in the South China Sea. One morning, my mom noticed that the sun was rising on a different side of the ship and suspected that we weren't going in a straight line. She informed the refugee leaders, but what none of them knew was that the captain and his remaining crew were planning to abandon ship. It was early in the morning. The captain slowly like, emerged from his cabin with some other crew members that were trying to remove one of the canoes on there, try to lower the canoe onto water. And all the young guys are screaming, he's trying to escape, catch him, catch him. So there were a bunch of them trying to keep the captain. So they contained him, pushed him back into the cabin. 
then we send a bunch of young guys guarding the captain's quarter for several days. We made sure that he, he wouldn't escape without us because nobody on the boat, not on that Skylark, would know how to make that boat, um, how to run it. So, now that the captain's attempt to escape had failed, the Skylark's leadership committee forced him to sail to Hong Kong. But conditions on the boat got worse with each passing day. The food was very precious on the ship, and they divided by the number of people in your family. We had two men. They ate more. We had two kids that needed a lot of food. Sometimes I ate a little, sometimes I didn't eat anything just to save for everybody else. So without food, I became pretty weak. Pretty weak, I couldn't move. Always I thinking of death, I said, oh, am I going to die here? Does it make sense to die from hunger? But I said, I, I cannot eat. I have to save it for you guys. So I think for about, before the, the Skylark got to Hong Kong, I think I was on my last string. For 10 days, I didn't go to the washroom. I had no water in me. I had no food in me. Uh, I think if we drag a few more days, and then there will be a lot of death on the boat. Wow. You know, it's so incredible listening to you tell some of these stories because so many details uh, I didn't know about. There were some that still vivid in my mind. Then there are probably a lot more that I don't remember anymore. Thứ ba, ngày 6 tháng 2, 1979. 20 ngày rồi còn gì? Quyết định đưa con tàu vào bến Hồng Kông. Tuesday, February 6, 1979. It has been 20 days. We are determined to land in Hong Kong. At 12.30 in the morning, we arrived in Hong Kong Harbor without being spotted by the Coast Guard. But one hour later, we were discovered. We were surrounded and forced to leave the harbor. All the men went up on deck and pleaded to stay. Negotiations lasted until the early morning. We were allowed to stay, but the ship had to move to some other location. I'm writing this as the ship moves. Thank God we have finally made it. I hope that we will land soon. AC here. Coming up, Tina's hopes of landing soon would prove to be very premature, and the wait on the Skylock was only just beginning. All right, we will be right back. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. 
Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. The jubilant mood of arriving in Hong Kong waters evaporated quickly. Instead of allowing the refugees on the Scotic to land, the authorities escorted the ship to Lama Island, a rocky outcrop about eight kilometers southwest of Hong Kong Island. They disabled the Skylux engine and left it anchored there under guard. Nobody was allowed to disembark. But every few days, a boat would deliver supplies to us. Days turned to weeks, and weeks turned to months. One big change was we got food. We were no longer hungry. And then now that the dangers was kind of out of the way, uh, other things happen, like people were fighting for food, fighting for space, fighting for a lot of petty stuff. It, it wasn't easy. No. In your journal, you write about one bright spot, something that kind of took away you know, your thoughts of all the difficulties, and that was the flea market. Thứ ba, ngày 3 tháng 3, 1979. Ở tàu này mà không nhắc đến chợ trời. Tuesday, March 1979. It would be a shame if I didn't mention the flea market on the ship. Ever since we started receiving spam in the rectangular can, people began trading food with one another. We are given only a limited number of items. Spam, sardines, yellow beans, oranges, condensed milk, and bread. But it was enough to form a little market during food nights. The most hilarious time is when clothes are distributed because it is a random lottery system. Most people are given mismatched items they cannot use. Family without kids are given children clothing, and men end up receiving women's items. There are also shrew middlemen who buy and sell canned foods and cigarettes. I find it wonderful and amazing that a market can form anywhere. So most of the time you went with dad and Uncle Nai. But I know it was fun every time Uncle Nai came back. Hey, look what I got. I traded this for this and that. So it was kind of fun. Especially when the days that when the Red Cross gave us um, used clothes. For five people, you got one item and you got, we got a skirt. And you were so happy, you said, I want to wear the skirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> we, we didn't trade it. Nobody wanted a skirt. <laughs> so I kept you. it? <laughs> yeah, you, you put it on. You said, oh, I want to wear the skirt. <laughs> it was sk- kind of toy, fun, something new for yeah. you. <laughs> but those fun moments didn't last long. The refugees wanted only one thing, to get off the Skylark. 
They pleaded with the Hong Kong government. They wrote letters to the UN High Commissioner. They even painted messages on the side of the ship saying, Have pity on us. Let us land. And in a desperate attempt to get the world's attention, the Skylake refugees decided to stage a hunger strike. Neither adults nor children accepted any food deliveries from the supply boat. It was during this time, about four months since we had moored at Lama Island, that my two-year-old sister, Jukka, became very sick. Chuyên nhật, ngày 17 tháng 6, 1979. Jukka đi bệnh viện ở Cửu Long đã 4 ngày. Sunday, June 17, 1979. Jukka has pneumonia and was sent to the hospital in Kowloon for four days. Why we, the residents of the ship, are on the fifth day of a hunger strike. My poor child, alone in a hospital with strangers. Secretly, though, I'm relieved she does not have to endure the hunger strike with us. When we found out that she got pneumonia, there wasn't enough uh, medicine to help. So they said that she had to go to the hospital in Hong Kong. So we went there, went through all the procedure, they checked everything. And after that, the doctor said they had to keep her in the hospital for a couple of days. And I was told to leave. I said, uh, can I stay? My, my daughter doesn't speak Chinese and she needs me. I said, no, she doesn't need you. You got to leave. And the police woman grabbed me and pulled me. At that time, I was in tears. And Duka was crying so hard. She was calling, Mare, Mare. But the police, like, pushed me. So I went back to the ship. Every day, I went up the deck, just hoping for any police boat that would bring her back. I didn't know when she would be back and what happened to her. She got better, she got worse. I waited and I waited for many days. But one night at around 8 p.m. when I was down in the deck, there was um, a neighbor, he was single man. And he walked to our quarry with Karen in his arms and she said, here you go. I said, what? When did she arrive? He said, I was on the platform just hanging out with friends and the police boat came. They dropped her up on the platform. She was standing there crying by herself. They just dropped her up like that. It was... So irresponsible, but at that time I thought, well, I'm glad that she came back healthy. There's nothing to complain. In late June 1979, five months after the Skylake had sailed into Hong Kong waters, the people on the boat couldn't bear it anymore. All the hunger strikes, all the negotiations and pleading had failed. So the refugees gathered together to make one last ultimate decision. It came to a point that we 
do or die. I remember that particular night before, everybody was called up deck to vote on what we wanted to do. So the idea was to cut the anchor and let it go. If we cut the anchor, the boat would go either way. It could land, it could went to sea, and we would all die. So we needed a vote. So people said, well, living here in this condition, it's just like die. So we all voted to go ahead with it. We knew that it was the decision of the lifetime. I knew that we could die because I, I don't know how to swim. How can I save the two kids? My husband can swim a little bit, but not enough to save the kids. I just pray. Didn't know how it would end. So they voted to cut the anchor overnight and take their chances, praying that the ship would drift towards the shore and not out to sea. A small team was assigned to saw through the huge multi-ton chain that ran from the bow of the Skylock down to the seafloor. It was the morning of June 29, 1979. The Skylock had been cut free, and overnight, this ferocious wind had picked up and now the ship was moving, moving way too quickly towards the rocky cliffs of Lama Island. Và 9 giờ sáng đó, buổi sáng hải hùng trong đời, tàu chạy đâm sầm vào núi. At 9 a.m. the next morning, the most terrifying day of my life, the ship crashed into the cliffs of the island. No matter the cost, we were determined to come ashore. The ship listed towards the island and water was pouring into the fourth and bottom deck. There was utter chaos as people scrambled out and made their way to land. Police had already lined up on the rocky cliffs waiting. Parents and children were separated and screamed for one another. Below, the waves crashed, the rain poured out, and the sea was in endless motion. So water was pouring into the ship. People were climbing up in panic. What did you do? We were trying to climb up onto the very top deck as everybody else did. People were screaming crying, yelling. I saw people, somehow they were prepared the night before. They threw the rope to the island. Some strong swimmer swam to the uh, to the cliff and tied those rope. And people was just like ziplining. They were ziplining to the rocky area. They were, so, they were all rock. I was just looking down at the waves at the water at the rain at the condition as I, I said I 
I don't know what to do, what I'm going to do with the kids. I cannot jump down and swim. The boat's going to sink any time. That feeling of helplessness just got more and more. And is that what it filled my mind at that time? What am I going to do? My mom says that people started suddenly rushing to the other side of the ship, the side away from the island. Floating far below the deck was a platform where vessels would dock to load cargo onto the Skyluck, and now police boats were using it to pick up passengers. To get to the platform, my mom needed to climb down a ladder, but it didn't reach the whole way. There was a gap of about 12 feet, and it was swinging wildly in the storm. And I saw people down on the platform. But from the boat to the platform, it wasn't easy. There was um, a small ladder, you know, the, the, the swinging ladder. It, I guess it's for the crew to climb up and down. I never used that before. It was only halfway. So they said all the men, you have to come down first and to help the women and the children. So your dad came down first. He was down there and I said, look for us, okay? You have to catch the children. He said, okay. So he went down first. There were so many people. So now I have one little bag on my shoulder, you on my back. I was holding her with my right hand. And how am I supposed to get down that ladder? I don't know. So at that time, there weren't a lot of people left on the ship. I had to go. The people behind me said, move, move, move. So I started the ladder with you on my back. And I said, you have to hold on my neck no matter what. Don't let go. And you said, okay. I said, don't let go of my neck, okay? This ladder had about 10 steps or so. So the bag, the handbag, just slipped and fell in the water. And between the boat and the platform, the wave was still crashing. I was so afraid that one of you may fall there and it would be crushed. So I didn't look that side. And the people behind me said, keep moving. So I went to the last, the last step, and there was some guy that I didn't see your dad. And I said, "Throw the kids now!" I said, "No." I said, "You have to throw them now." So I said to you, "You have to go first. You sit there, and when you see Tuka, you hang on to her, okay?" So I threw you now. Somebody caught you, and they threw Tuka down. Another man got her, and two of you were waiting there. Then by the time it was my turn, nobody helping. So I fell down and sprained my ankle. I was, oh my God, it hurt so much, and I forgot about you. By the time I was able to stand up, both of you disappeared. 
I was crying, calling. So, so, where are you? So many people, the rain, everything else. I was limping around looking for you. Then somebody else there said, Oh, you're looking for the two kids that are on police boat number one. There are several of them. So uh, I was limping my way there. I saw you. I said, I lost the bag. Everything precious is in there. But I found you. Got on the boat. So happy. I said, where's that? Didn't know where he went. By the time I turned around, it took up. I said, oh my God. I want my husband. I only have small fragments of memory from this day. I remember seeing the water pouring into the bottom of the boat. But I don't remember the ladder. I don't remember the floating platform or being thrown down. I've heard short versions of the story a hundred times, but I've never heard some of these details. Seeing my mom cry as she recalls that day, it breaks my heart. But I am so grateful to her for doing it, for surviving and for telling me now, because I was there. This happened to me too, but I was just too young to remember everything. The only other memory I have of this day is sitting on the police boat. It was speeding away, and the skylark shrunk into the distance. So on that day, the police boats then gathered all the refugees and took us to a processing center. Late at night that same day, our family was finally reunited. For the first few weeks, the refugees were housed in a facility that used to be a prison. Later, we were spread out in several different refugee camps. We were safe, and life started to feel more normal. My parents got jobs, my dad worked at a factory, and my mom taught English at a school run by the UN. We carried on for nearly 10 months, until we received some very welcome news. Thứ sáu, ngày 18 tháng 4, 1980. 10 giờ rưỡi, từ nhà đi thông thả ra sắm sửa bổ. Friday, April 18, 1980, at 10.30 a.m., while I was walking to work at the Sam refugee camp, I passed by the United Nations office and ran into Mr. Tarr, who was breathing heavily. He said, Call your husband quickly. I think you're getting an interview for Canada. Anxious, I could feel drums pounding in my stomach. Finally, hope. Both of us rushed back to gather our paperwork and return along with Susu and Tukka. Finally, we met Scott. He had a friendly interview with Duang and in the end accepted us. Oh, what happiness! We both feel refreshed. And we just woke from a beautiful dream, even though we are tired from rushing around this morning. Thứ sáu, ngày 25 tháng 7, 1980, 
Suốt một đêm không ngủ để sắp xếp hành lý. Friday, July 25, 1980. Our last day in Hong Kong. We didn't sleep last night in order to park. The bus left Matawai Camp at 3.15 a.m. Farewell, refugee camps. Upon entering Kai Tak Airport, I still couldn't feel happy because I didn't know what step was still ahead. The airplane took off at 6.30 a.m. Goodbye, Hong Kong. Half an hour later, I felt safe and finally started to smile. Am I really sitting on an airplane? When the um, the airplane was finally in the air, you said you, you let out a smile. After so much that we've gone through, I finally cracked a smile. Smile of happiness. Smile of relief appreciation beyond all of that we finally left Hong Kong the airplane landed in Montreal we were taken by bus to a military base and on the way my mom sees something that takes her breath away a huge field of golden flowers she has never seen such a beautiful sight I didn't know that it was dandelions. (laughs) But it didn't matter, because we were finally in Canada. And Canada has been good to us. We settled in Surrey, B.C. My parents had successful careers, and our family thrived. And time moved on, and it slowly softened the edges of our memories aboard the Skyluck. When we arrived in Canada... I set my diary away and deep down never wanted to look at it again. So it was sitting somewhere in a corner of the closet. And now when we're working together on this journal, even though we only went through not even half of it, I felt, okay, I can do it now. It's not as painful as I thought. Uh, first, I think you and Tuka deserve to know what was going on at that time because you were part of it. And for the people who are interested in getting to know it, I think they should have the right to know it too. So now I don't mind to share. I've accomplished what I've set out to do. Those large gaps that used to exist in my memory are now full of vibrant, detailed story. I'm so grateful that my mom kept a written record of all that happened because her journals have kept our family's story from the erosion of time. But there are so many more pages I've yet to translate and many more stories for my mom to tell, so long as time allows. Andrew Nguyen. That doc was produced by Andrew with Allison Cook. It was edited by me, A.C. Rowe, with Jennifer Warren. Special thanks this week to Untang Dao for her help translating some of those journal entries, and to Tina Nguyen for reliving them. To see that photo of Tina, 
the one where she was a young woman at the university in Saigon, head to our website. There you can also see pictures of the Skylock and of Tina's journals. You can find all of that at cbc.ca slash docproject. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Tanera McLean, Joan Weber, Sherry OKK, and me. Althea Manassan is our digital producer, with special thanks this week to Ben Shannon. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Bro. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.